I'm Will Roselip. This is episode one of Classical Dark Arts Radio, classicaldarkarts.com. Today we're looking at the idea of devilry, of Satan incarnate, the Dark Lord himself striking fear into our pure and innocent hearts through music, classical music. Why do we, all of us upstanding, hardworking, respectable folks, why do we need this element of fear in our lives? Why do we shake at the prospect of eternal damnation, all religious beliefs aside, because you don't have to be religious to fear this stuff? Even if we live the most virtuous of lives, what is it about getting just a whiff, the smallest hint of evil that thrills us and reinvigorates us every time we hear music? Do we make a pact with the devil every time we put on a new record? The enemy has attacked our children today through the music industry and every avenue that he can send in his demons. Satan, let our children go. Now, there's a lot of chitter-chatter about evil music influencing kids. But what if all the fear-mongering is just an equally evil ploy <laughs> by killjoys who get all bent out of shape when folks cut loose and enjoy themselves a little bit? God damn you all to hell! It could just be Mr. No Fun Time cracking down on what he doesn't understand. So, by definition, whatever you don't understand, then, is a threat. This doesn't just go for quote-unquote devil's music. This goes for new art, new political ideas, and unfamiliar faces of all types. If you're not familiar, you feel threatened. Get familiar. Today, we are talking about the music of the devil. If you listen to the Killjoys, you'd start to think that the devil, the hellspawn who walks among us, has completely dominated our music. Christian rocker Larry Norman, for instance, asks a pretty important question. The devil in classical music could just be boiled down to one chord, the embodiment of Lucifer himself. The tritone. What in the hell is a tritone? To get technical for a second, basically, a tritone is a simple musical interval. It's one note, and then a second note, three whole steps above it. To get really technical, uh, theory geeks will know it as a diminished fifth or augmented fourth, and you get a tritone when you slice an octave perfectly in half, and it sounds like this. Super evil, right? All that dissonance and whatnot... It's used all the time in music. If that has you feeling unsettled or haunted, how about we play a tritone and then resolve it? You've probably heard this famous resolution. Or what about this? Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil is here in our music, lurking in our tritones, corrupting us through these fabulously popular tunes. So... Who's responsible for deciding that the tritone is the musical embodiment of evil? That would be a jerk named Guido of Arezzo. Guido was a medieval music theorist from late 10th and early 11th centuries, and he happened to invent modern musical notation. Not too bad, you know, win some, lose some. Anyway, he wrote this thing called the Micrologus, which was basically a fat treatise on music that talked about singing and teaching and music theory. He identified the tritone as problematic in medieval composition. Now, one juicy rumor is that the Catholic Church banned the interval in the Middle Ages, as in you couldn't sing it, you couldn't play it, 
You couldn't think about it or dream about it. You couldn't talk about it with your friends. But a little sleuthing around the interwebs proves that this was not the case. It was just an urban legend. Over on a Snopes.com message board, user Music Geek sets us straight. Here's what Music Geek wrote. The tritone was, and still often is, discouraged in melodic lines because it's a somewhat awkward interval to sing. Gregorian chant is nothing but unison melodic lines, so it was more or less effectively banned by the Catholic Church during the earliest centuries of liturgical music. The church was pretty much the only outlet for composed vocal music during that time. Tales of medieval monks being excommunicated, whipped, or burned at the stake are probably exaggerated. So the tritone was never expressly banned by the Catholics, but it still has a cool name. Johann Josef Fuchs in 1739 referred to it as Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music. Yes, there we are. Now, just so we're clear, to run a good PR campaign, whatever your hustle is, you got to create a frenzy of excitement. You start with raw talent, obviously, the product or person or movement itself. But then... How do you get to that next stage when John and Jane Q. Public know about you? One way to do this, and just for the record, this is not endorsed by Classical Dark Arts, its parent company, classicaldarkarts.com, sponsors, underwriters, or affiliates. One method is to start a firestorm of controversy. Freak people out. You do something so outrageous, so offensive, that it jolts us normal working folks out of our somnolent existences. You remember Marilyn Manson? In the 90s, he made bank by putting on a bunch of makeup, uh, playing metal music, and most important of all, starting rumors about his alleged ties to the Church of Satan, satanic worship and rituals, drinking blood, uh, Anton LaVey, the whole package, about taking out a rib so that he could actually, never mind, let's not get into that, but the point is scaring people's cells handsomely. We want to be scared, and for that reason alone, we strap in and subject ourselves to a gut-wrenching, disgusting roller coaster ride, or straight-up insanity like base jumping, uh, or, I don't know, NASCAR racing, stuff like that. Whatever it is that gets that adrenaline pumping, we're interested. What we should establish here is that we love to scare the shit out of ourselves, and if something or somebody comes along, some new artist that just radiates danger and intrigue, we have to have it. We got to do it. We have to have the product. Ever seen the Saw movie series? Yeah, it's just all types of disturbing. And we love it. It repels us and attracts us at the same time. In all of this, the key is finding the sweet spot. Just enough danger, just enough uppedness to carry us through, to lace our normal workaday lives with some excitement. Yes, maybe a little depravity too. So when a musician or composer comes along and they're not only good at what they do, writing and performing amazing music, but they also get the rumor mill churning with talk about packs with underworld figures, otherworldly deals, classical audiences have been historically helpless to avoid their come-ons. So let's get to our handsome Satanists themselves, Franz Liszt. Franz Liszt is a 19th century composer, an arranger, and most famously a pianist with outrageous charisma, sex appeal for days, intrigue, the whole works, sort of like a modern-day Benedict Cumberbatch or uh, Mario Lopez, Justin Bieber, Larry the Cable Guy. Uh, if you've ever heard that Phoenix song, Listomania, apparently that's a real thing. It's about our friend Franz Liszt and audiences who are that taken with him. So when we're talking about building a fan base, List had it in spades. He knew what the hell he was doing. People were going into hysterics at his shows. Just a couple quick examples. 
Listomaniacs would converge on the man looking to get anything from him. Anything. A piece of clothing, a used cigar butt, even a lock of his hair, which he wore kind of down on his shoulders like a rock star. Although now, modern day, it's kind of like a bob. If you've ever seen uh, earlier pictures of Ed Markey, Senator Ed Markey, you get the idea. One of the reasons for Listomania was that the man possessed monster keyboard technique. Monster. Not only was he a certified superstar, but he was relentless in his writing, in his composing, and maybe, or probably most importantly, for his lasting legacy, arranging orchestral and other music for the piano. He gave it a new life in the hands of an able-bodied pianist, namely himself. The killing stroke came when Liszt mixed world-class talent with a twist of danger. Take, for example, Liszt's Mephisto Waltzes. The Mephisto Waltzes were written in 1880 and 1881, and the first two of those were written for orchestra, later reduced for piano. So for the first waltz, the first Mephisto Waltz, there is a wedding feast in progress at a village inn, and there's, uh, you know, music and dancing and drinking. People are doing keg stands. Somebody's probably rolling a joint in the back room. And uh, and this is the story that Liszt decided to build around this. It's sort of a myth that he patterned the first waltz after. Everybody's favorite comedic duo, Mephistopheles and Faust, walk by. And Mephistopheles convinces Faust to join up, to go in, see what's up at this party. They crash the party. Mephistopheles grabs a fiddle from the hands of some poor sap just sawing away on it in the corner. And uh, he draws from it indescribably seductive and intoxicating strains, quote unquote. The Amherst Faust whirls about with a village beauty and a demented dance. They dance out of the room and out into the woods where, you know, who knows what they end up doing. They're outside. Maybe they go to make out point to uh, make out in the backseat of Faust's car. This is the most famous of the Mephisto waltzes by Liszt. Uh, let's, let's hear a little bit of that. So then we move on to the second waltz, and this is where the devil firmly got his claws inside the mind of Franz Liszt. It starts and ends, this waltz, on an unresolved tritone. <laughs> Pretty much exactly what the churchy religious types of the day were nervous about. And when we talk about a Hollywood ending, you know, when everything wraps up nicely, everybody's happy and smiling for the camera, um, that doesn't actually happen. There's no, like, guy gets the girl at the end of this second waltz, or girl gets a guy, or girl gets girl, guy gets, I don't know. You know, you get the idea. Uh, there's no nice ending here. It is not resolved. So first of all, I'm going to play the beginning of this where you can hear the first tritone. This is the first big FU that Liz puts in here. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, got the idea. And then we're going to skip now to the ending so you can hear how this goes out. Here is the tritone that it ends on, list in the Mephisto Waltz number two. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was that the devil himself entered List to cause him to write these waltzes, these explosive pieces. But how did the devil enter? Was it some sort of transference or something? Or where did it come from? I direct your attention to the uber-famous composer Camille Saint-Saëns and his piece Dance Macabre, a piece that List knew and studied well. He eventually transcribed it for piano. I'm sure that most of you listening probably have heard this at some point or another. It was used in an episode of Tombstone, uh, also used in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You probably heard it in like cheap-ass Halloween compilations or on Pandora, something like I don't know. Anyway, you're going to recognize it right away. This is as evil as anything that List ever wrote. Um, we're going to listen to a little bit of it, and you're going to hear 12 harp notes, which are are told to symbolize the 12 strokes of midnight. And then that wild scortatory, it was tortured tuning of the violin that comes in and some sweet ass tritone action. Here we go. Camille Saint-Saëns based this whole thing on a poem that was popular at the time, and it is sufficiently dark, uh, one that drove audiences wild with its sort of sinister implications. So I'm going to read you just a little bit of here, pull this up so you can hear what uh, Saint-Saëns was thinking and why his composition had such a huge impact on Franz Liszt. Here we go. Zig, 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 death and cadence, striking a tomb with his heel. Death at midnight plays a dance tune. Zig, zig, zag on his violin. The winter wind blows and the night is dark. Moans are heard in the linden trees. White skeletons pass through the gloom, running and leaping in their shrouds. Zig, 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 each one is frisking. You can hear the cracking of the bones of the dancers. A lustful couple sits on the moss so as to taste long-lost delights. Pay attention now. Zig, zig, zig. Death continues the unending scraping on his instrument. A veil has fallen. The dancer is naked. Her partner grasps her amorously. The lady, it said, is a marchioness or a baroness, and her green gallant, a poor cartwright. Horror! Look how she gives herself to him like the rustic was a baron. Zig, zig, zig. What a saraband. They all hold hands and dance in circles. Zig, zig, zag. You can see in the crowd the king dancing among the peasants. But hist! All of a sudden they leave the dance. They push forward. They fly. The cock has crowed. Oh, what a beautiful night for the poor world. Long live death. Inequality. Heavy stuff. Such was the literature at the time that was corrupting the young, innocent minds in the audience. And Camille Saint-Saëns knew what he was writing about. We were talking about Franz Liszt a minute ago. Liszt wanted to be a rock star on the order of Nicki Minaj or Pink or Beyonce. Since none of them were actually alive back then, Liszt looked up to one of the biggest and most famous violinists to ever pick up the instrument, Niccolo Paganini. Liszt was roughly a contemporary of Paganini's, and he modeled his high-flying career 
after Paganini's. In fact, he transcribed and reorchestrated a lot of Paganini's music, so there was definitely a direct influence there. If Camille Saint-Saëns was our second Satanist, then what's the big deal about our handsome Satanist number three, Paganini? He was a musician like nobody had ever seen. Think of him in the vein of a Charlie Parker, Django Reinhardt. He was insanely, outrageously talented. Paganini impressed his fans. He had an impassioned following. He went broke a few times. He had to hustle his way back up. He had a series of kind of cush musical appointments, would stage concerts. He attracted a rabid following in the same way that Liszt did. And his lasting legacy was unfair levels of talent on the violin, also on the guitar. He had sort of an unholy or unearthly, ungodly, un-whatever level of talent. Paganini wrote many pieces that fanned the flames of the rumor mill, including his Devil's Laughter Caprice, where he channeled the Dark Lord himself. Here's a little bit of that. So sinister, is it? It sounds kind of nice by modern standards, except for the part where the violinist has to twist her fingers into pretzels to play the piece. It's tough. And what could explain the technical breakthrough of playing such a piece, but a contract for one soul? I guess maybe hours in the practice room, too. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But one famous Paganini story, uh, this is more a myth than actual fact, but just the same. It's told to every single string player when he or she starts off was that he would be in concert and he would have this long, black flowing hair, even longer than Liszt's hair. And he had on, you know, sort of this cape. Paganini would start out playing these pieces, fingers flying around. And then suddenly with his left hand, he would just pluck the string and break it. And so then he would move over a string and just keep playing. And then all of a sudden, he would break another string and just keep playing. And he would be playing now in two strings, just back and forth and back and forth. And all of a sudden, he would snap the third string off. And he would be reduced to playing on one single string, performing the same acts of theatricality, of madness, of this sort of gymnastic sequences. And this is why Paganini, true or not, acquired the reputation for having made sort of a pact with the Dark Lord. And finally... We finish with Giuseppe Tartini, 1692 to 1770. His piece is The Devil's Trill Sonata. The story behind the trill is about a dream that Tartini had in which the devil himself came to Tartini in this dream and the devil asked him to be his servant. So what did Tartini do in this dream, but naturally handed his violin to him to test his skill? The devil started to play with such virtuosity that Tartini felt his breath taken away. I'm quoting Wikipedia here. The complete story, though, is by Tartini himself. Here he writes, One night in the year 1713, I dreamt I made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful played with such great art and intelligence 
as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. God, he's a crafty guy, that devil. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me, and I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain, the music which I at this time composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill. So here is the piece that enraptured, transported, and enchanted Giuseppe Tartini in his dream, Devil's Trill Sonata, which starts off all slow and melancholic, something like this. Okay, again, nothing too sinister there, but it quickly devolves then into a jaw-dropping instrumental. Here's the man himself, Itzhak Perlman, finishing that one off. who traded their souls and risked eternal damnation for one shining moment on terra firma when they became unquestionably the greatest musicians anybody had ever heard, or alternately, all those hours in the practice room just made Paganini and Liszt and Tartini seem a little unsociable, a little mysterious or aloof, who knows what. At any rate, for more info, you should head to the CDA Command Center, such as it is, classicaldarkarts.com. There you can hit the link and grab my book, Deconstructing the Devil's Influence on Today's Teens, subtitled Why Satan and Classical Music Go Fist in Claw. You'll also find a full list of references, links, and curiosities related to this show. You can sign up for our free-ass, freaky, subterranean, once-weekly CDA mailer, the non-spam newsletter I send out Saturday mornings, after a long night battling inner demons, as well as the Dark Lord's Friday night temptations. I'm Will Roslip. See you next time. Just one more thing. As I was hitting publish on this episode, literally getting ready to upload this audio to SoundCloud, I got a call on my phone. It said restricted number, so like a normal human being, I just let it slide to voicemail. The caller left a message, so I stopped and listened to it, and I think you should hear it, too. Here it is. Oh boy. Uh, we'll see you next time.